from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. And it reads like this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosened in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was Christ. This is the blessed word from our Lord. Just a couple of things uh, uh, before we get started this morning uh, to mention to you, uh, I look over and see Amanda Staten, who uh, was corralling uh, loads of kids in the 930 service. Thank you so much. I'll walk through. Um, if you like kids, so this announcement is for you. If you don't like little kids, just tune me out for a moment. But if you like little kids and you think you would enjoy serving at 930, so come in early. We need some help in our preschool department at 930. Love to have you to serve in that way. Just uh, make a note on your connection card. And uh, Leslie Hester, who leads that ministry, will be in touch with you. Uh, so tremendous opportunity to serve with those, uh, with those kids. Secondly, uh, before I start, let me mention... Uh, to you that uh, I asked you a few weeks ago to pray for Brandon, Brandon Finley, who was uh, in the hospital, and we uh, prayed diligently for him. Well, he is with us this morning in this service. Brandon, would you stand up so that we can see you? There he is, guys, in this awesome... And so Brandon uh, stands there as a true answer to prayer, and uh, we are grateful for what the Lord is doing and has done uh, to bring uh, Brandon uh, back to be with us this morning. Uh, praise the Lord for his answer uh, to our prayers. Uh, this morning, uh, beginning a new series that will go for a few weeks, simply called Church, and uh, the series is... Uh, in conjunction with the um, the fact that we have some new bylaws that will be voted on in a few weeks, um, you may not know that our church, uh, Grace Community, was started uh, 18 years ago. Uh, 18 years ago, some folks met together, and uh, really, this initial group of folks were uh, risk takers. Uh, they were renegades of sort, willing to step out. Uh, into uh, the unknown and follow God in his plan and seek his heart for um, what they ought to do. And so when they first met, they met up at uh, uh, Camp Greer. Uh, they met in people's homes. They met uh, in people's basements. Uh, you may not know that our first baptism at Grace was in a swimming pool. And so uh, that was just the space that was available for that first baptism. 
Uh, and then eventually the church uh, uh, landed over on the east side of town in uh, the attic, uh, old hardware store uh, portion of it that uh, had been fixed up, put that in quotes, uh, and we were able to meet there in the uh, attic, or they were. I wasn't around at the time. And so uh, this group of folks really stepped out and uh, uh, sought uh, God and sought his will and his plan for what he wanted for them. Uh, they read books, they uh, scheduled guest speakers, they did all of these things to try to get this church uh, started. Uh, you may not know or may know that we're Baptist, and as a matter of fact, on the sign back in the day, it said, a new way to be Baptist. And the thought was, uh, we, we are a Baptist church, but there are some, different, some things we want to do differently than most typical Baptist churches do. And so from that group of people has grown Grace Community Church. I did this in the early service, so I'll do it here. Uh, you may be surprised, uh, but if you were part of that group, would you stand uh, uh, today if you were part of that early group? So look around the room, and uh, uh, good job. Thank you, guys. Uh, uh, a uh, few more, quite a few more in the early service, but, but it's amazing to see how God has grown uh, a small group to be uh, what he has done. And so I came on board as the pastor then, uh, another risk uh, by this group of folks because I'd never pastored a church in my life. And so I didn't know what I was doing and no lie, there's still some days when I don't know what I'm doing. That, that, that is true. That is absolutely true, and I'll sit and I'll think, oh my goodness, you know, what's next, and, and, and what is it that I'm to be about? And so, um, so uh, when I came to Grace, we um, didn't have offices. My office was in Miss Harris's house. Uh, Miss Harris was in her 80s at the time. Uh, so my office was in her house. I had a desk that was donated to me, and I had a cell phone, and that was it. I was the secretary, I was the pastor, I did everything, you know, I just did the bulletin, uh, I did all this kind of stuff that was just my life, and, and this was our church, and, and we bought a, a used copier from an elementary school, all right, so you know, once an elementary school's done with the copier, that thing is toast, and sure enough, it was, like, uh, it built our faith every single week when I would pray that the thing would run the bulletins and uh, get them through for Sunday uh, worship. And so it is from that that God has grown us and, and blessed us. And, and uh, uh, last year, we baptized our 500th new believer in Christ. And, and God has just really uh, blessed his work here. But our bylaws have been the same as they were uh, 18 years ago. And so this team has been working on our bylaws for several years. If you're a member of Grace, you should have received an email this week with a link to them. Uh, if you're not a member of Grace and you want a copy of them, they're available as you leave. Um, and then they'll be available up on our website in a viewable way this week. And so uh, as we come then to this series, the question is, what is, who are we? Not Grace Community Church this morning, but the church with the big C. Uh, when I say the church with the big C, I'm talking about the church all over the world. Who is the church and what is the call of the church? What is God's call on the church? And so it is fitting that we go to the passage uh, where church is first mentioned in Scripture. 
And it is interesting that when we land here and arrive at this passage, in this passage where church is first mentioned in scripture, uh, there's not a lot about the church, but there's a lot about Jesus. And so it reveals something to us and And um, the two realities or the theological truths of the sermon this morning are this. Number one, the father reveals the son. And number two, the church proclaims the son. The father reveals the son and the church proclaims the son. Let's jump in. So Jesus has taken the disciples up north of the Sea of Galilee to a town called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, It is here at the base of Mount Hermon that Jesus begins to preach or or to teach his disciples. If you take the book of Matthew and you uh, uh, divide it pretty simply, you will find Jesus' public ministry in Jerusalem, Jesus' public ministry up in Nazareth around Galilee. You will find Jesus' private ministry to his disciples, and then Jesus trek into Jerusalem for his death and resurrection. And so we're in the private ministry little section of the book of Matthew. Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi and uh, he's gathered his disciples together and he looks at them and he asks them a question. And here is the question, who do the people say that the son of man is? Jesus' favorite name for himself is son of man. Who do the people say that I am? And so they answer him, and their answer reveals uh, the public perspective of who Jesus is. What do they say? They say, well, uh, some say that you're John the Baptist. Well, that means that uh, Herod, who had killed John the Baptist, had started a rumor because he was so paranoid and scared that John the Baptist had risen from the dead. And so... uh, so, so this rumor had spread and some people thought Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. Then there is uh, the answer. Some say you're Elijah. Well, um, all good Jews who knew the Old Testament would go to Malachi and in Malachi they would discover that uh, uh, Malachi predicted in the latter days Elijah would come back. Others say you're Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet who didn't always have good things to say. He was revered by the Israelites, so that's good company. And then you've got, uh, you've got uh, other prophets. The bottom line is, is that Jesus, uh, if he's looking for good PR, he's gotten it. Uh, they're saying really good things about him, and he is in really good company. Uh, Elijah, Malachi, John the Baptist, these are bold prophets of God. But Jesus doesn't revel in that at all. He looks at them and he says, but who do you say the Son of Man is? That you is emphatic. But who do you say that I am? I want to, as an aside, say something to you this morning. In both of our services every single week, we have a lot of students, high school, college students, middle schoolers. At some point, your faith must become yours, not that of your parents. Uh, You must own or disown whatever you do, but your faith has to become yours. And when you face God in the judgment, God will not look at you and ask you about your mom or your dad. 
he will ask you, who do you say that I am? And so it is imperative that you begin to process and determine and define for yourself, who do you say, who do you personally say that Jesus is? Uh, Secondly, I would say to you, the answer to this question is the turning point not only in your personal life, but it is the turning point in history. C.S. Lewis had this to say about this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He goes on to say that is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would be a great moral teacher, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Jesus drew the line in the sand, and there's no way around that line. And so he looks at Peter and the apostles, the disciples, and asks them the question, and it is the question he's still asking people today. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? So how does Peter respond? It's very definitive. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's examine his response for a moment. The definite article appears three times in it. The Christ, the Son, the living God. Do you know what the definite article means? One and only. It's definitive. You are the Christ. There is no other Christ. You are the Son. There is no other uh, Son right? Uh, John three sixteen, God's only begotten son. You are the living God. All other gods are lifeless. All other gods do not provide life. So how did Jesus answer him? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now, this exchange is fascinating. Why? Because there's a play on words from the beginning. Right? So Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And uh, uh, Peter says, uh, as a spokesman for the group, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says right back to him, you are Simon Barjona. It's the only time this name for Peter appears in the New Testament, in all of Scripture. Well, why? Well, first of all, you must remember that Jesus gave Peter the name Simon when he met him, uh, gave Simon the name Peter when he met him. That wasn't Peter's name. Uh, Peter shows up, he introduces himself to Jesus as Simon, and Jesus looks at him and says, well, you're Peter. I don't know why Jesus just renamed him, 
right? You are Peter. So we got to remember that. But here Jesus says, Peter's official Hebrew name, you are Simon Barjona, Simon, the son of John. So you get this exchange back and forth. We, we somehow uh, dismiss the humanity of Jesus. This is honestly a pun. Uh, this is a, a funny thing that goes back and forth. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. And then he says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Meaning you didn't figure this out. What you just said didn't come from you. But my father who is in heaven. Let's talk about that for a moment. My father. My. Uh, how did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Our father. But here he says, my. Why? Uh, there's a certain intimacy to that, isn't there? That's my dad. That's my mom. Jesus is saying, my father. Why? Jesus is saying to them, uh, the, the love that I have for my father and the father has for me and the spirit, I, I want you to be part of it. Uh, my father has revealed to you who I am. In other words, he's letting you in, Peter. That's what he's done. Now, this word revealed, I want to say in the Greek because I think you'll get it in the English. It's apocalypto, apocalypse. It, it literally means to make known what has before been unknown or to take the cover off of. All right, so when I was in college, I, I was poor as dirt. All right, just, I was so poor. And I had a piece for a car. It was a 1979 Plymouth Horizon four-door hatchback, two-tone gray. Yeah, it was a beauty. And I drove that thing everywhere, right? I, I bought that thing. Um, I mean, just, I, I'm not, I don't think that old, but, but some of the ways I learned things are really old school. It was a stick shift. I'd never driven a stick shift in my life. And I remember buying that thing, my own money, my own cash I'd saved in Asheville. My dad dropped me off. And I had to get home in a stick shift. I'd never driven a stick shift. And I'm in Asheville. I still remember trying to get on the interstate. I mean, it was just stop and go, stop and go, stop and go. I finally got on the interstate and was absolutely thrilled that I didn't have to change gears, right? Uh, my first time uh, on a stick, and, and, and here I am having to get it done. So I drove that car, and it was January of my senior year. Wofford was the basketball team, was playing a team down in Alabama, and we didn't have anything else to do but to drive from Spartanburg to Alabama to watch it. So I had three friends who wanted to go, and those three friends uh, were all losers <laughs> because they had very nice cars, but their parents wouldn't let them drive them. So they said, Jerry, you drive. Why? I bought my car, right? And so, you know... I drove. And we go to the game, and it's about 2 a.m., and we're coming back to Atlanta, Georgia. And when we go back to Atlanta, Georgia, all of a sudden, smoke starts billowing out of every orifice in my car. I finally get it off the interstate, and when I do, everybody's asleep but me. I wake them all up, and uh, if my kids ever did this, I would kill them. But we all slept in the car in Atlanta. 
No cell phones, right? I know you guys can't imagine life without cell phones and internet and all of this kind of stuff. No cell phones, so we sleep the night. We had gotten to a service station. We just sleep in the parking lot of this uh, service station. Get up the next morning. Uh, the mechanic, uh, wake up. The mechanic comes, looks at it, and says, your engine's shot. Car's over. The Plymouth Horizon died right there. So... He calls the tow truck. The guy comes. We empty all the valuables out of the car. We got to get back to Spartanburg somehow. We empty all the values, valuables out of the car. No, I look at the guy and I said, well, how much would you pay me for my car? And he looked at me and said, let me put it this way. I will not charge you to tow it. <laughs> it was that bad. Like it was that bad. And so everything out of the car, luckily uh, somebody with us had a friend at Georgia Tech and got us back to, to Spartanburg. So my senior year, my second semester, no car. What a bummer, right? I'm, I'm just having a bum ride. I have no car until I save up the money to buy another one. And so I had money saved and put some with it and saved and saved. And so my dad called me up and he was looking for a car back home. And he said, I found a couple cars for you. Like, what is it, Dad? And so he said, uh, a Toyota Tercel. Oh, that's bad to worse, you know? And so I was like, nah, Dad. And then he said, well, there's this other car. But he didn't know how to pronounce it, right? So, so Chad, don't make fun of me. And so he said, there's this other car. And I said, what is it? And he said, a Pugiat, um, a Peugeot. Well, I had seen one of those in the parking lot. And back in the day, those were sweet rides. And I'm like, yes, that's what I'm saying. And so sight unseen, I bought the car. Never saw it. I trusted dad. Sight unseen, bought the car, called, got the insurance. Somebody picked me up and uh, drove me to Black Mountain to meet my dad at the dealership. It was uh, 1984. That was 1990. So that was a new car for me. So 1990, it was a 1984. Only had 24,000 miles on it. It was champagne. It had sunroof. This was all that was described to me. The window worked. They didn't know my Plymouth Horizon. Uh, my Plymouth Horizon had rolled off a hill and the hatchback was in the shape of a V. And so that wasn't the case. I mean, this was a nice car. And so I remember getting there and I go out to see it for the first time. Like I've dropped all the money I have in the world on this car and I go out to see it for the first time. And sure enough, it met every expectation I ever had. Like I thought I could not drive a car this nice. Like, no way. So I go in and I sign the paperwork and I get in my car and I'm driving down the road. And do you know when they tell you, if you buy a new car, try everything out before you head out? You should. (laughs) You should. Because my car had a sunroof and a moonroof and the seats would heat up. I mean, it had power windows on all four. It, uh, it had all this stuff, but I'm driving down the mountain, headed towards Spartanburg, and I couldn't get the heat on. And I remember, I still remember, so I knew it was too good to be true. The heat doesn't work in this stupid car, right? I was so mad. I just didn't know how to turn it on. It worked. I just didn't know how, right? It was all this fancy stuff. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful car. Almost never used, right? Almost never used. And so there I was, sight unseen, bought this car, loved this car, drove it to death. I just loved it. It is much the same way as Peter is 
He was called to follow Jesus having no clue who he was. Don't forget that. At that point, he did not know he was the Messiah. So, so when you come to Christ, you know full well who he is. Peter didn't. And Peter left everything and followed this guy. Not knowing who he was. And, and according to Jesus, it wasn't until God took the scales off his eyes that he saw him for who he was. You say, Jerry, what do you mean by that? Please hear me. If you come to know God, there has to be a revealing somewhere. You have to show up on the car lot and see, see what it is you believed in. And, and according to Jesus' words to Peter, uh, bless are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So that means every person in here who knows Jesus, God took the blinders off your eyes. He opened your eyes to see him. That's what it means. When is the last time that in your uh, time with the Lord you've thanked him for that very fact? Why? Why? Why did he take the blinders off your eyes? Does he have to? Why did he? It's amazing. And so the Father reveals the Son, and then the church proclaims the Son. Uh, Jesus goes on and says, I tell you, you are Peter. Again, this is a play on words. Of course, Peter knows his name. But he's saying Simon Barjona, but no, no, your name's Peter. That word in the Greek is Petros, and upon this rock, Petra. So there's a play on words. Peter's name means rock. Petros is a variation thereof, but it still is in the rock family, all right? One is masculine, one is feminine. Petros, feminine. Petros is masculine. So, so you've got, you are Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. I want to speak to something for a minute uh, here. And as I do so, I said this in early service, this is in no way to completely rearrange the Catholic Church's theology, but I just simply want to address it. Okay, there is a common belief among Catholics, many of you in the room, several of you in the room used to be Catholic, there's a common belief among Catholics that this designation right here, this conversation between Jesus and Peter, made Peter the first pope. Like, this is it. This was the establishment of Peter as the first pope. So let me tell you why I struggle with that for a bit. And, and I just want to, just to give you just reasons out of Scripture. I believe that Peter, uh, okay, let, let me also say this. Then Protestants over and against that have said that then Jesus doesn't really mean what he says, and Petros really means, that little rock means Peter's confession of the faith, and so they've completely stirred away from this. Ephesians 2.20 makes clear that the church is built on the apostles, Christ himself being the cornerstone. So I think it goes too far to say that the apostles aren't the foundation of the church. Scripture says they are, and that Christ himself is the cornerstone. That's clear in Scripture. So what, is, what, is, what does this mean? Well, if you're going to say Peter is the first pope, here is the difficulty of that. In Acts 8, Peter and John are sent by other apostles. He's not calling the shots there. Others are. If you go to Acts 11, there's something called the Jerusalem Council, and they're meeting, and Peter has to testify, along with Paul, that they've got to talk about some things. If you go to Galatians 2, Paul rebuked Peter. 
And then if you go to the very next section here, if you go to the very next section, Jesus tells Peter he's going to die. And Peter looks at him and says, no, you're not. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. I'm just saying, I don't think Jesus would say, hey, you are, you, Peter, are the one upon which I'm going to build my church. And hey, by the way, I'll call you Satan. The logic doesn't follow. Does that make sense? Like, so if you follow the logic, I I just don't think it does. So what in the world is he saying to Peter? He is saying to Peter, I'm going to build this thing called a church. So our focus should be on Petros and Petra, but on the word church. And the word church here, first time it shows up, and it means two things. It's one word with two meanings, a double entendre. What is it? It means those who are assembled together. That's meaning number one. And number two is those who are called out. So the church is people who come together to go out. That's the simple definition of church. People who come together to go out. That's who we are. The church is that. That's it. We are people who come together to go out. As someone said, as they were leaving the early service, that means we are gathered and scattered Right, We are the church gathered like we are this morning, and we are the church scattered as we go out this week into the world. So it is against that that the gates of hell will not prevail uh, against. It is that. And what is fascinating is uh, history proves that, doesn't it? It's 2,000 plus years ago that Jesus made this statement, and the church is still going strong today all over the world. All over the world, the church is thriving. As a matter of fact, the church is thriving more than any place in Africa. In Africa, I've emailed back and forth Pastor Cherdna, who pastors the church in Senegal, where we go and serve alongside them. And Cherdna and I have emailed back and forth several times this week. Already this morning in Senegal, that church met underneath a, a large mango tree and worshiped the Lord. That church in that little village called Gatir in Senegal. Uh, out in the bush, hours away from civilization, no electricity. That village has already seen God raise somebody else up, and now they're sending to the village next door, and he's starting a church in the village next door. That's what the church does. The church cannot help but to come together and go out, come together and go out. It's in our DNA. We know nothing but that. That's the church. That's what Jesus says. If the Father is going to reveal the Son, then the Son is going to build a means for getting the word out. So how does it work? Keys. Keys to the kingdom. All right, so much has been written and said about this passage, and, uh, but let's just keep it with its imagery. It's a metaphor. What do keys do? They unlock things. That's what keys do, Right? Keys lock and unlock things. They do both, right? So whatever is bound on heaven uh, will be bound in earth, and whatever is loosed in heaven will be loosed in earth. So what in the world does it mean? This passage has been misconstrued, I think, to mean all kinds of things. But in the context of the church gathered and the church scattered, of the church coming together and the church going out, what does it mean? It means that the church has the keys to the kingdom in the sense that when we declare the gospel, people, we open the door to the kingdom. 
The, the declaration of the gospel swings open the door to the kingdom. That's what we do. That's what we do. We open the door. But, but you say, Jerry, do we close the door too? Yes. Say, what do you mean? The same gospel that invites some repels others. Have you noticed that? Not everybody responds to the gospel the way you have. Some people hear what you hear and they don't like it. Why? Well, the gospel has been called a stumbling block. Jesus himself called himself a stumbling block. Let me give you an example. Acts 4, 5 through 12. I love this. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. This is the people in Jerusalem. These are the elite, spiritual, religious elite. And when they had set them in the midst, these are the disciples. And perhaps the man who had been healed. They inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? I love this. Why are they angry? Because God forbid Peter was used by God in the healing of someone. That's why they're angry. They're angry because God worked outside of their realm of the way they think God should work. So they're angry, right? Their tradition is being broken. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired by what power, what name did you do this? I love this. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, <laughs> like I read that and I go, Peter, man, you just dropped the mic on that one. What does he say? Well, if you brought us in because we healed a crippled dude. Guilty, right? That's what he's saying. You know, if, if we're on trial because there was a crippled guy, now he's walking, well, shoot us, you know? If, if, if lives are being changed and that makes you angry, then, oh, well, let it make you angry. That's what Peter is saying here. It's amazing. I love his words. By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Oh, Peter, uh, they're surrounding you. This is not very wise, right? You're calling them out. You're looking at them and saying, hey, the dude you crucified, he, he's the one who healed him right there. The guy you killed, healed. How is it that one man is healed and and these people get so angry. It's the gospel. Look at this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What is he saying? The same stone that is a stepping stone for some is a stumbling stone for others. Why? of what the gospel says the gospel says you are so sinful jesus had to die for you and so loved he was glad to die for you and so if you're so sinful he had to die for you if you're going to believe the gospel guess what you've got to lose your idea or your thought that you're just all that right no you've got to realize i'm a sinner in need of a savior some people hate admitting that and so if you never get there guess what you'll never get the gospel. The gospel will offend you. Or Acts 18, 9 through 11, 
Paul has been going through some persecution, and the Lord said to Paul when not in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Look at this, for I have many in the city who are my people. Now, what you must know about that in the context of it, when he says, I have many in the city who are my people, those people have yet to come to Christ. Paul's ministry had not begun there. What is he saying? He's saying, I've got people in this city, they've yet to come to Christ, but I already see them as my people. I'm just waiting for you to go get them. Wow. Who around you is his people just waiting for you to say the word? Ah. Uh, just waiting for you to say the word. They're his people. And your job is, I want to be the guy, right? I want to be the person who says the word. And, and his people come to Christ. What happened? And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I love that. God, you got people here that I got a word to say to people that you got who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ so that they come into the kingdom and are born again and become others who do your work. So at Grace, our mission is uh, exalting Christ, transforming lives, embracing a community. It's so simple, and, and that's our strategy. It's our mission, and it's our strategy. So what do we do? We come into this place, and we exalt Christ. We, we sing about him. We preach about him. Everything we do in here is about Jesus. And then what do we see him do? Change lives. That's what he does. And then when he changes lives, we, with those people now whose lives are changed, go out into the community and wrap our arms around this community and the world with the gospel. And then other people come in and they hear us exalt Christ and uh, their lives are changed. So now grows a bit. We go out into the community with those people and we embrace this community and the world with the gospel. And guess what? They hear and then they come back and they join us and it grows a little bit more. That's what we've done for 18 years. Nothing fancy at all. There's nothing extreme about it. There's, there's, there are no tricks up our sleeves. They're, 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 no, that's what we've done for 18 years. And for 18 years, we've heard just echoing, echoing, I have my people who have yet to hear the message. So what what does that do? Gives us this impetus. Exalt Christ. See him change lives. Go out into the community. Embrace. And we'll do it again and again and again. Do you know what I love about it? means we never run out of work to do, amen? So much work. So many people. So many opportunities. There's a, a guy by the name of Sam Walker who's written a book. It's a fascinating angle on uh, great teams. Uh, his, his take on great teams is that Great teams are known for their stars, but the stars aren't the reason the teams are so good. And so what he did is he went and examined great teams through the years. And when he did, 
he went to discover the inner workings of the teams, and his research led him to this understanding or this reality that um, it was team captains that probably deserved most of the credit for the great teams. As a matter of fact, if you're a soccer fan, you know who's on the screen behind me. Who is this? This is Pele. All right, so, so he was a great soccer player, like contended by many soccer fans to be the greatest of all time, is this guy on the screen. And he was on uh, the 62 and the 63 uh, Brazil team that, that uh, won, uh, or the 61 and 62 Brazil team that won the World Cup two years in a row. And so Walker went looking at this team, and he discovered a guy that I'm guessing none of you, unless you are like a super crazy soccer fan, I'm guessing, have never heard his name. Hildorado Bellini. Hildorado Bellini. He was a center who, in his nine seasons with Brazil, never scored a goal. He was a defensive genius, but he was also the team captain. What Walker discovered in his research is that while Pele was out getting his picture taken and doing all the things that the superstar does, uh, that, uh, that Hill Dorado was in the locker room getting the team together and making sure everybody was good and on the field taking some for the team as a defensive player and that he, for those years, nine years that he was on the team, was really the glue for the team. Nobody ever heard of him they heard of him. Well, that's the church. We're the Hill Dorado. And we don't exist to draw attention to ourselves ever at all. We only exist to draw attention to Christ. Period. Period. So, so it means our buildings don't matter unless they help us draw attention to Christ. It means our programs don't matter unless they help us to draw attention to Christ. It means it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, educated or uneducated. It doesn't mean, it means amidst this ridiculous banter in our country today, a political mess that we are in, doesn't matter what color you are, we exist to draw attention to Christ. That's who we are. That's the church. That's the church. So there's no glory for Grace Community Church. No, no, the glory is to Christ. Right? There, that means there are no superstar pastors. There, there are no amazing worship teams that we, we just lift up and put on a pedestal. No, we all exist to bring uh, glory and praise to Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the church. That's the church. Right? Bruised and battered and beaten and worn and pulling the team together. What? Taking one for who? Jesus. We are willing to take it on the chin for Jesus. We are willing to spend our lives for Jesus. We are willing to be counted as nothing for Jesus. We are willing to let go of tradition for Jesus. We are willing to let go of our favorite program for Jesus. We are willing to be unknown for Jesus. We are willing to lay it all down for the sake of the one and only only Jesus Christ. Amen. That's who we are. 
That's who we are. So we exalt him. We see him change lives. We put our arms around people who need him, and we just keep doing it. Not to receive any glory, but to exalt him again. And watch him do it all over again. So easy to get distracted, isn't it? It just is. There's so many things that can distract us. So I want to ask you a question this morning. First of all, to us as a church, who do we say Jesus is? And then to you as an individual, who do you say Jesus is? Is he your personal Savior? Is he your personal Savior? Would you bow your heads for a moment? As you do, I I want you to ponder the second question. Who do you say Jesus is? If you do not know him personally, perhaps you've relied on your mom or dad or the church or good deeds. And if you do not know him, say, Jerry, this morning I'd like to come to know him. I'd like to personally receive Christ. How? Someone has said, and I agree, it is as simple as ABC. Admit your sin. Believe Christ died in your place for your sin and confess Christ. I think that fits Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. This morning, if that is you and you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, you can. You say, Jerry, how, how would I do that? I want to give you simply a sample prayer. But it gives you the essence, and you can pray it this morning from your heart to the Lord. Dear Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, and I am sorry for my sins. I believe you died in my place taking my sin on you today I receive you as my personal savior I believe you were and are the son of God And today I confess to you and I will to others that this day 
you not only saved me, but became my Lord. If you have done that this morning, if you have prayed to trust Christ, then I would say welcome to the family. And my next question to you would be, who do you want to confess that to? Who are you going to tell? So with our eyes still closed, I'm going to slip to the keyboard and play an old, old song. And, it, and I just encourage you to think on this 